Okay, back on the Edlow podcast. Hello, Mr. Knoll. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm excited about this. You know, I, I recently had somebody, I do I do this uh, monthly feature called Just Me, where I let listeners ask questions and someone asked me, they're like, how come, I'm surprised you don't have a lot more lawyers coming on. And I'm like, well, I deal with lawyers all day. So, <laughs> and, you know, and so uh, I like to use these for other things, but you, you really intrigued me because you were a litigation lawyer, which as a fellow trial lawyer, there's nothing but contention, but then right. you, you've turned into a peacemaker. Yep. I did. That's interesting. I, I got to ask you as somebody who just went through uh trial prep and I mean, it got super contentious at times in depositions. Uh, what, how do you change that? How do you go from like super competitive, super, you know, because if you're a trial lawyer and you're any good at it, you have to be competitive. Right. How did, what was it that made this transformation for you? It was, uh, it, it was a journey. Okay. And so as I, basically my background is I grew up in Southern California in affluence, went to Dartmouth college, came back, went to McGeorge, graduated in 77 with a lot of academic honors and clerked for a year. I decided I got a bunch of clerkship offers mm -hmm. and I didn't want to go to the Bay area. There weren't any jobs in Sacramento because Sacramento was over lawyered. And I didn't <laughs> still, want to go to the still, I didn't still is by the way. <laughs> okay. I wanted, to go to, wanted to go to, and I didn't want to go to LA. So I ended up clerking uh, for George Hopper, who was a, an associate justice on the fifth, um, the California Court of Appeals, Fifth Appellate District, and I moved to Fresno. Mm. Didn't know anybody in Fresno, but it's close to the mountains, and I love being in the mountains. And I live in the mountains now. I've got 10 acres just south of Yosemite. Mm -hmm. And after the clerkship, I ended up taking a position as a new associate uh, at a law firm called Fullerton, Lang, Rickard, and Patch in 1978. Joined the firm in September, and they, they brought me in to groom me as a trial lawyer. And I tried my first jury trial in October of 1978. It was a three and a half day jury trial in Madera County. And then the next case was helping one of my partners. We co-defended co, co a, a $36 million securities fraud case in the Southern District of California down in San Diego. That was a seven month long federal jury trial. And, and, that, and we won that and we won three and a half, we defended and got three and a half million bucks on our cross complaint. That's how my career started. Yeah. And so for the next 20 plus years, I was a trial dog. Uh, I did a lot of state court litigation, but then I migrated to federal litigation because I was, as you know, if you're a really good lawyer, you get penalized in state court. Hmm. Judges, uh, especially in the kind of work I was doing, which are very complex, often very complex legal and factual cases involving business and mega millions of dollars. Uh, there's more than once I got kicked out of, a, I got assigned a, de a department and the judge said, get out of here, go back to the PGA. You're going to make me work too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but, that's uh, the thing that, that's, that's what's so funny, especially if you have something complex, that's going to take a lot right. of time. They don't want you, they don't want you in their court. They don't want it. And, and when I, and too often when I got into state court trial, the state court judge would feel sorry because I was so well prepared and so good. I, I was just stomping on the other side. Mm. And, so you get penalized for that. 
you know, you, mm. you get bad rulings, bad evidentiary rulings, bad motion rulings, and they're just trying to even the table out, you know. So there's no sure. there's no advantage to being a really good lawyer. State court, in my opinion, state at least in those days, I don't know what it is today. It's been a long time since sure. I've been in the courtroom, but but it was, you know, they're trying to do justice, and and you know they <laughs> they do that by stomping yeah. on the good lawyers, and, and that lets the the ill prepared poor lawyers survive, which mm -hmm. I don't think is a good thing, but. Uh, right. That's the way it was. So I migrated to federal practice because in federal practice it was just the opposite. Being right. a good lawyer, you were you were you had a distinct advantage mm -hmm. by being a good lawyer. The federal judges are generally smart, they're disciplined, they um, expect the rules to be followed, they don't cut anybody any slack. And if you're well prepared and smart, you do well. And so my firm was a, a bankruptcy firm and commercial litigation firm with a couple, we had a couple of people doing plaintiff's PI and stuff like that, but basically that's what we did. So I started getting uh, big commercial cases that were coming up large bankruptcies that we were handling, my ba bankruptcy partners were handling where the reference would be withdrawn and the case, the claim, for example, would be sent to federal court. And so that's how I, I kind of got a federal practice going and tried some really big federal cases. Uh, so that's how it started. And then in the in the mid 1980s, completely unrelated to the practice of law, I decided to take up martial arts. And in by the time I was 40 in 1990, I was awarded my second degree black belt in this northern Chinese style of martial arts, very aggressive, violent form of martial art. And uh, my teacher told me to go study Tai Chi as a martial art. Mm. And Tai Chi has two really interesting paradoxes. One is the softer you are, the stronger you are. Mm. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Well, you can imagine that didn't compute too well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You're powerful. But it turns out that in Tai Chi, that's absolutely true. In fact, you cannot be an adept at Tai Chi unless you're soft and vulnerable. Mm. Because why why you, is that? Because in Tai Chi, you never use your own energy. You, you, if you're soft and the, and, the, and the energy of your opponent comes at you, you're going to redeflect the energy back into them. Mm. And you never, use, you never have to use your own energy. And the only way you can do that is to be soft and vulnerable, to suck mm. them in and then turn the energy on them and kill them. Every, blow, every move in Tai Chi is a killing blow. I mean, it's a mm. vicious, vicious, vicious martial art. Mm. And it's the oldest of all martial arts. Right. All martial arts stem from Tai Chi. So I studied Tai Chi, practiced it, and uh, eventually started to understand it and learned how to move energy. And, and uh, it was pretty, pretty incredible. And the, um, so then this takes me into the 90s. I don't know, it was 97, I think. Uh, I'm 47 years old. I'm trying a case. And the thought comes to me, what the heck am I doing in here? Mm just in the middle of a cross-examination. So I finished the case, won the case, off on a vacation, had a river trip planned for 10 days up in Idaho on the main salmon. So I ran, we had, we, one, of us, one of my buddies got a permit and we're all whitewater people. So I just spent 10 days on my raft thinking about floating through the canyon, thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer. And when I really sat down to think about it, over at that point in time, it would have been uh, 20 years 21 years, I'd only, I could only count five people, five clients that I felt that really came out of the system better than going in. 
Hmm. And that's after trying, you know, 100, probably 30 or 40 jury trials and, you know, 100 bench trials and arbitrations. I mean, a lot of litigation mm-hmm. and all, of all different kinds and complexities. And I just said, you know, I, I don't, really don't want to go another 20 or 30 years and only say that I've really only truly helped 20 or 30 people. That's not yeah. that's not in my blood. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I came back. Uh, I came back from that trip and drove down out of the mountains to my office. And I heard a public service announcement on our national public radio station for a new master's degree in peacemaking and complex studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is one of the West Coast Mennonite schools. The Mennonites are one of the three traditional Protestant peace churches. Mm-hmm. And President Pacific had established a center for peacemaking and complex studies. And I don't know if you've ever heard the term restorative justice, but restorative justice started the international restorative justice movement started at Fresno Pacific University with the cadre of faculty people there that were going mm-hmm. around the world talking about restorative justice as an alternative to retributive justice, which is our obviously our criminal system. Mm-hmm. So I enrolled and these guys blew my mind. I was mm-hmm. unhappy about the law. I was really getting tired of the fighting. It's very contentious, right? You're, you're, always, you're fighting opposing counsel. You're fighting the court. You're fighting your client to get paid. You're fighting your partners over, over distribution of you know, fees. It's just yeah. one constant fight. No peace. Yeah. I got tired of it. Yeah. I was really good at what I was doing, but I was really tired of getting not... I was just tired of the fighting. Yeah, I won't say anything more than that. No, it's it's funny. I actually just to stop you right there, real quick. It's it's funny you bring this up because I just recently saw like a thing on one of the social media sites that it was a thing that says uh, law is the only is the only practice really the only job where you you are trying to do your job and there is actively someone out there trying to stop you from doing your job. And people wonder why lawyers are so stressed and angry. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and what people don't realize is that when you're in private practice, I don't know if you, you've ever faced this problem, but I mean, you've got partners who are various mm-hmm. types of contributors to the firm. And here I am, second largest in the firm, and we got people that aren't even breaking even, and we're supporting them with these massive salaries. And I mean, it was just, I was just mm-hmm. getting tired of it. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I just decided that I, I wanted to do something different. And then when I got into the academic program and started working on my master's degree, it opened up a whole new world mm. about human conflict. And I began to realize why people hated lawyers and why the legal system is really powerful and effective at solving certain kinds of conflicts. Mm-hmm. It's really horrible at a whole bunch of other kinds of conflict. <laughs> right. And it's being asked to do too much. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we, we, if we've ever had the capacity, we certainly did not have the capacity in the late 1990s and certainly don't have the capacity today to figure out how to resolve conflicts without finding a mean junkyard lawyer to represent you and beat up the other side. That's kind of the attitude yeah. that people have. Yeah. And I said, there has to be a better way. And it turns out there are a lot better ways. Mm-hmm. So I, it took me three years. I got my master's degree and... Uh, then, and during that process, my partners knew what I was doing. They were pissed at me. I was the second largest earner and they were not happy about that. And so we continued to have ongoing discussions about what my practice would look like. 
And one day I was given an ultimatum. You don't stop this peacemaking stuff. You don't get any paychecks. That was on a Friday. Wrong thing to say to me. Um, I came in on Monday and I said, I quit. And I handed them all my stuff. And I said, I'm out of here on Friday. Um, and I walked away from 10 million bucks more than I put into the firm that I'd taken out and just walked away. And on the following Monday, November 1st, I started my peacemaking and mediation practice. Wow. And that's kind of how it started. I still have a lot of growing to do, but that was, that was how it started. No, but you know, I got to credit you for something. I I just had a podcast with a guy who's a motivational speaker and he talked about, I mean, we, we had a lot of conversation about, you know, there are people out there who will, stay uh because i got well let me say before i go into that that it had to have been very scary for you to do that because you didn't quite know okay so what is this peacemaking thing going to look like so many people out there would rather stay in a in a position that they could control and know even if it makes them unhappy rather than going into a position that might be more fulfilling but are completely uncontrollable and there's unknown unknowns so uh so so what so you were tell me at that point what got you was there have you always been that way or was there something that finally clicked in you that you're like i'm ready to make this move it was there was no planning involved in this yeah i did not expect this ultimatum Mm. we'd had a number of partner meetings and we were i thought we were still in discussions but then i should have seen the writing on the wall i was too trusting all of a sudden, I got kicked out of my partner's office into a paralegal carol. My secretary quit. I was what they did not. I was not given a new secretary, and the new secretary that was hired to replace her, I thought she was. I was going to be working with her, and turns out no, no secretary. Right. And they were putting the squeeze on me. Mm-hmm. I did. I really didn't see the handwriting on the wall. Um, but I'm not the right kind of guy to squeeze. I mean, you can imagine mm-hmm. trial lawyer, secondary black belt. Nah, don't fuck with me. And so when I got that ultimatum, I went home that weekend. I was married to my first wife and we did the numbers and said, how can we make this work? And I said, I think I can make pretty good money at this, at least doing not only litigated dispute mediation, which is really it's once you get trained in, it's really easy. That wasn't that wasn't where I I saw the real money in non-litigated disputes, family Mm -hmm. business conflicts, partnership disputes corporate disputes, uh, all kinds of different organizational disputes where litigation was not an option for people mm-hmm. and where you needed a different kind of process to help people figure out how to solve their problems. I, I, I charge, I did charge a lot of money. I mean, as much as 50 and 60 and $70,000 per engagement. Wow. Um, and, and it turns out, that, so it wasn't planned, but we figured out that, that we didn't, I didn't need the money. We didn't need the money and we could make things, work Mm -hmm. so i said i told i I told these guys to shove it and so it took about two years for me to kind of get started and going but from 2002 until the collapse in 2009 2008 2009 i actually made really good money yeah Uh, and then the bottom dropped out and and my practice my mediation practice really never recovered Mm. Uh, so i went off and did other things Mm. so it it was, I did everything I told, you know, you tell your clients never do. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a savings. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just trusted the universe mm-hmm. that this was the right thing to do. It was the right thing for me. And it was because I was 
even as a trial lawyer, I had never, I never led an integrated life. I had my life as a trial lawyer, but I also had another part of me that was much more holistic and, and had a much higher calling and was, was, you know, had a spiritual side and a, you know, a service side that I basically suppressed in order to do what you said, you know, you're in the gilded cage and you're trying cases and making money and, you know, a lot of yeah. prestige and that sort of thing. And I finally just recognized that's not right. I need to be integrated. Mm -hmm. And I did it, I did it on, you know, right after my 50th birthday. Wow. And, and walked away from everything. Man, you know, that's another thing that I think is really interesting because um, a lot of people, you, when you're, when they're 50, probably think, well, you know, I mean, like, I'm a little older now and I'm comfortable and am I really going to start over at 50? And you did it. You know, that's impressive. So, yeah, best business decision in my life. And and why why do you say that? Josh, I am, I have never been happier mm. than I am right now. And you can look at me and I'm 72 years old. I'll be 73 next month. I don't look it. I don't feel it. I don't act it. I'm, I'm still 50 years old. Wow. I have phenomenal health. And wow. I, I, every now and then I get DNA testing to see what my biological age is. Hmm. And my biological age is 20 years less than my chronological age because I wow. really take care of myself. And then I look at my peers mm -hmm. who are in their late 60s and 70s, and they look like they're just worn out. Like all litigators? Tusks, all litigators. Yeah. They're burned out. Yeah. And, you know, so from a, just from a lifestyle perspective, my decision was fantastic. Mm -hmm. I've had up and down, up and down periods economically. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that I can, I serve more people in a week today than I served in 22 years as a lawyer. Wow. A lawyer. Wow. So tell me now this, this, the, the, uh, the peacemaking, you know, uh, you're, you're talking about non where, where, where litigation isn't necessarily an option. Right. Um, so what are some some tips that you could give people? What is this process that you talk about of peacemaking? And how does that attribute to, say, like day-to-day -day life? So the, the, the I have discovered, let, let me rephrase that. I have developed a set of skills that when mastered, will stop you from ever having a fight or argument again in your life. My, my promise to my clients today is if you master my skills, you will never have a fight or argument again in your life. So I've moved from being a litigator to being a conflict resolver to now being a conflict preventer. That's actually really interesting because I got to tell you, I, as someone who is currently a litigator, I don't know who I am if I am not a fighter. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so so tell me that, that just seems like it like you said it's it just seems like such a transformation swing the other way so you're saying with your your situation you could avoid fights in any context at all any context at all wow how I, does that work I, I feel okay so so it's based on it's based there it, it's based on listening okay. and i characterize listening into two categories type one listening and type two listening. Mm. Type one listening is the kind of listening that we're all engaged in. 
the focus is on me, the listener. You know, maybe as a lawyer, I'm listening to you to gain information, to make decisions, to give advice, but it's on my agenda. Mm-hmm. And when we're just having ordinary conversations, we're never really listening to the other person. Mm-hmm. We're, they're, they're going like this, and we're thinking about the next thing we're going to say. Yeah. Rarely do people listen to each other. It's all focused on themselves. That's type mm-hmm. one listening, and that's what everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Type two listening is speaker-focused not listener focused. And in type two listening, I am interested in listening to the speaker from the speaker's frame of reference with no agenda of my own. Mm. I am, and I'm going to be, and I'm going to be, I, I, I might listen to the words, but in type two listening, I'm going to be more focused on intended meaning and emotional experience. And so, and the last level Emotional experience is a technique called affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, labeling. And the way I teach that is three steps. Ignore the words, read the emotions, and reflect back the speaker's emotions with the use statement. Hmm. And this is the, the most powerful skill I have ever experienced. It's, hmm. it's, uh, it's grounded in neuroscience. Brain, I, I, I discovered this in 2005 in a very difficult mediation. And then two years later, a brain scanning study came out of UCLA, out of Matthew Lieberman's lab. That shows what happens when you tell somebody what they're feeling or technically called affect labeling. So is that is that what you're saying? Like when you say the you statement, you're saying you are calling out what you view as what the person who's speaking is feeling at the time that they're saying. Exactly correct. Okay. So I say, Josh, man, you are really pissed off. You're really angry and you're frustrated and you feel completely disrespected mm-hmm. and you're being ignored by opposing counsel mm-hmm. and you feel completely unsupported and unappreciated by everybody around you and you're anxious mm-hmm. and worried and concerned. And this is distressing to you and you're upset and sometimes you feel completely hopeless. And there are times when you feel completely abandoned and alone and betrayed and even unlovable. And all of this just creates tremendous stress for you. And so when you do that, how do you typically get, uh, what is the response? For autonomic relaxation responses, a nodding of the head, a verbal response like, yeah, or exactly, or you got it, mm-hmm. a dropping of the shoulders and a sigh of relief. Hmm. And what brain scanning studies show is that when you engage in this kind of listening and reflecting, the emotional centers of the brain are highly escalated. They begin to dim- diminish in intensity. They're literally inhibited. And at the same time, the executive function of, of the brain and the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex is activated which brings people back online so they can process mm. their emotions. When, when our brains are highly activated, highly stimulated by emotion, there's an overwhelm that occurs. Daniel Goldman called it the amygdalic hijack. And it basically mm. shuts down all decision-making and all thinking. And we, all we are, mm. we're just reactive emotional beings in that moment. Mm. And we literally revert back to our last, where we stopped emotionally maturing, which is for most people between six and eight years old. Mm. And so we revert back to that kind of childhood reactivity because that's all we've got. 
-hmm. and we can no longer draw on higher executive function to regulate our behaviors and to make good decisions. And so this is why you see in conflict, people engage in fighting and arguing, it escalates, 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 because people are, are, first of all, the reason it escalates is people aren't feeling heard. So what do they do? They raise their voice and, yeah. and ultimately escalate into violence to be heard. All they want to do is be heard. Yeah. When we are able to listen to them, I call it listening people, listening others into existence. When mm -hmm. we listen them into existence, they calm down in less than yeah. 90 seconds. It takes 90 seconds. Wow. Wow. So now I walk into a, now that I've, I have this skill, this is post 2005 when I developed this. Now I walk into these high, high intense, non-litigated disputes with huge emotions. People are screaming at each other, family members, you know, mm -hmm. business partners, whatever. I can get people calmed down. Mm. And once they, uh, my, as I teach in graduate, my graduate students, de-escalate and problem solve. Once I get people calmed down, they can almost always solve the problem themselves. Hmm. The reason they can't solve a problem is because they're, they're so emotional, they can't think. And hmm. so they're just reactive. Hmm. In, before people, I'm the only one that really does this, although I've trained tens of thousands of people in these skills, including many judges and lawyers. But if you don't have this skill, what do you do when you're in a conflict, let's say with a business partner? You go find the meanest junkyard lawyer you can find to put the herd on your partner to get, try to get your partner to bend to, to your will. Right. So you, you can fight to be right. Yeah. And we know how well that turns out. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It you, does. know, it's, you know, the, there's also a, a component of this that sounds like you, you have to also, the person who employs this um, has to also be really interested and actually engaged in wanting to know what the other person wants because because let me give you an example like i i can think of times where like uh you know it, how, do, how do i put this you know if you're if you're if you're engaged and you i guess how do i explain this like almost sometimes you want the fight you know yeah, what i mean like there are some, there are a lot of people that fight to be right right it's it's but, almost like they think that they have to fight because they don't know to, any better, they don't know anything any better right they have right. they have to fight to be right because they've got fragile egos, they've got PTSD that's being triggered, emotional abuse in childhood, mm -hmm. and they don't have any other tools other mm -hmm. than to fight. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to have two people wanting to like each other or love each other. Mm -hmm. I just have to have them have enough have a sufficient desire to get past the problem. Mm -hmm. That's all I need. And and when you learn how to listen to emotions you don't you're not agreeing with what the other person's saying mm -hmm. all you're doing is validating their emotional experience mm -hmm. and when you do that people feel deeply heard and they calm down and relax mm -hmm. and so when i'm when i'm convenient when i'm doing difficult conversations i have a i actually facilitate difficult conversations between people and make them transformative mm -hmm. i've got a whole page on my website about that uh, and I do it for free if you let me live stream it onto YouTube. If you don't want to do that, then you got to pay me. Because <laughs> I want to show people what you can do Yeah, with real yeah. people, with really difficult problems. But in, as I describe to people that come on and do difficult conversations with me, I say, this is not a conversation. This is an exercise in listening. Mm -hmm. And here's how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then we go through the process.
and usually within an hour, everything, wow. everything transforms. Yeah, interesting. You know, let me ask you, because this is something that I find myself getting caught up with. And maybe, maybe before you learn this, you've heard this before. I've had numerous times where I've been engaging in some sort of argument with somebody and you hear the, you're lawyering me, you know, uh, kind of thing. And, and here's the, what the reason I bring that up is because I think it's interesting hearing you as a trained lawyer talk about emotion, like focusing on the emotions, because, you know, you, like me, were trained to depose. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, 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 yeah, so there are some, like, I think my question for you is, is like you said, well, you're validating their emotional experience. Well, what happens if you're dealing with somebody who you don't feel like their emotional experience is valid? Doesn't matter. It does not matter. Okay. Why, why doesn't it matter though? Because they're still having the emotional experience. Sure. So you've got to validate their emotions before you can dive into the problem and find out why they're having that emotional experience in the first place. Got it. So you're, so you're saying if like, like let's say you're dealing with somebody and you, you have uh, a completely different view of something. Right. And political they have some, yeah. Political right. polarization is a classic sure. example of that. Yeah. That's a good example. So you're saying it's not necessarily that you're just validating and, and that's it. But you're saying before you can really resolve this conflict, you have to validate their experience before you can before you can get down into resolving the conflict. Correct. Okay. Here's 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 the mind shift that my clients have to make. Mm -hmm. We're taught in the law. The law is the law in our society in general is based on a fundamentally flawed assumption around human behavior, mm -hmm. human nature. Mm -hmm. And that assumption is that what separates us from other species is rationality. Mm. That's that's flaw. It's wrong. It depends it, on the person. <laughs> it is it's, a, it's wrong. And it has been propagated for over 4000 years by philosophers and theologians uh -huh. and more recently by other people. And it is, it's completely embedded in every part of our culture, including the law. What neuroscience tells us today, and neuroscience, this is a, one of the few areas where there's large agreement on, on uh -huh. nature, is we are emotional beings. Mm -hmm. Every decision we make is emotional. There's no such mm -hmm. thing as rationality. Mm -hmm. In fact, I teach a course down at Strauss Institute at Pepperdine. Uh, mm -hmm. called decision-making under stress and uncertainty. And the first thing that I have my students do, the first thing we do is explore, what does it mean to be rational? Mm -hmm. And they quickly learn that there is no such thing as rationality. Everything we do is emotional. Mm -hmm. Now, we have tools that we can bring to bear on problems like critical thinking mm -hmm. and you know quantitative, qualitative analysis, logic, scientific method, statistical analysis. There's a whole bunch of tools we have that we can use for, for working on problems. Mm -hmm. But fundamentally, we we are emotional. And one of the things that we have to do when we engage those mm -hmm. tools is, is try to keep the emotional bias out of our decision-making process because every decision we make is emotional. Mm. When it, it, Even if you get down to the neuronal level in the brain, when you get mm -hmm. to a, a, a small network that's going to make a decision, one, yes or no, mm -hmm. the decision is going to be based on this. Does this bring me more pleasure or less pleasure? Does this allow me to avoid pain, avoid more pain, 
to accept less pain. It's a pain pleasure equation. That's emotional. Yeah. That's and a good point. So, so the decision isn't some rational calculation in our brains about, you know, what's the right thing to do. It's an emotional calculation about approaching for pleasure and avoiding pain. Foundationally, mm -hmm. every single decision is based on that foundational equation in, in the brain. And that's all emotional. Right. So going back to this political polarization, I mean, obviously you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier. I, I can't I can't think of another time where this I, this concept of listening, what I what I've some I think what you're saying is a little bit even more in depth than what I'm about to say. But I, I often tell people when they're when they're fighting, I ask them, so are you listening to respond or are you listening to understand? Yeah. So, so exactly. So let me give you my four steps for having a calm conversation with a politically polarized. Okay. You got uncle Charlie, who's just a crazy out there polarized yeah. everything, everything he believes in and stands for you find. So you find disgusting and nauseating and appalling. Okay. And there are a lot of families that have that problem. Oh yeah. So now you're going to, you can approach uncle Charlie a little differently. You're going to ask four questions. The first question is uncle Charlie, Tell me about all of your life experience that brings you to the beliefs that you have today. Mm -hmm. And you're going to ask Uncle Charlie to tell his story. How did he end up with these beliefs? Mm -hmm. And along the way, you're going to reflect, especially ethic labeling. Mm -hmm. because, because there are going to be particular life events that led Uncle Charlie to the beliefs that he has today. And so you're going to listen and you're not going to argue. You're not going to fight. All you're going to do is listen and reflect. Mm -hmm. Second question. So uncle Charlie, how do your beliefs help you in your everyday decision-making? Huh. And the reason that I asked that question is because that's all beliefs are. Beliefs are nothing more than decisional shortcuts. Mm. When we have a belief, it tells us how to answer a question without having to give it any thought what, at all. Hmm. And our brains are metabolic misers. They don't, our brains don't like to work hard. They don't like, our brains burn up a huge amount of metabolism when we have to think, when we have to move into system two thinking. So beliefs evolved to allow us to process really complicated problems very simplistically mm -hmm. without a great deal of metabolic demand. Mm -hmm. People don't think about their beliefs. They don't think about how their beliefs serve you. So you could say, for example, so Uncle Charlie, Patriotism is a really big value of yours. How does patriotism serve you? That belief serve you in your everyday life. And now he's got to think about it because he's never thought about that before. Sure. And you listen and you reflect. Then the third question is, so Uncle Charlie, how do you deal with people that have different belief systems than you? Now he's got to think about that. Mm -hmm. And you listen again and reflect. And then the last question you ask is, so Uncle Charlie, how do you think our society should be structured to account for all of these radically different belief structures that compete with each other and conflict and cause all this polarization? How should our society be structured to deal with that? Mm -hmm. And what you find when you ask these questions and listen to learn, as you pointed out, and not debate, not fight to be right, is that you will have more in common with Uncle Charlie than you can possibly believe. And, yeah, and yeah. You, you will disagree on a few things, 
but fundamentally you will share many of the same values. That's what I that thing's been so interesting about even having this podcast. You know, my, my podcast is a human interest podcast. It's not one specific um, area. I just, it's all about the human experience. And what I've really noticed about all of these people, like I've, I've had actors on pro wrestlers on, uh, you know, mental health professionals, lawyers, doctors, I've had all these people on. And the one thing that keeps coming through is everybody's having a very real human experience. You'd be amazed at how many, if you look through the, the different, the different ones that I've done, I always put, you know, like I'll put Doug Knoll, peacemaking, whatever, like the, the main topics of what we talk about, how many of them end up with a mental health component because everybody's got a story about trauma experience, you know, those types of things. And I think that when I, what I'm noticing is that every single person I've ever interviewed, I have more in common with than differences. Right. We have, we share tremendous amount in common. The problem we have today more than ever before is that we have a small group of media companies that make their profit off of polarization. Mm-hmm. And we have a small, relatively small group of politicians that gain power, position, and privilege by fear-mongering and radicalizing and inflaming their constituents. Mm-hmm. And they raise a lot of money off of that. And they, the way I put it is I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a registered independent. I don't belong to any party. Mm-hmm. And when people ask me, how do you vote? I say, I, I'm going to vote for the leader that's going to lead me to the light, not yeah. the leader that's going to lead me to the darkness. Well, then how, how do you vote for any of these people? <laughs> you know, that's that's been so interesting is that I've always said, uh, I, I remember, um, the, you know, I'm probably going to get some flack from the, for this, but I remember when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were running. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, this is the best we've got. You know, this is it. And and I was going to vote third party. And I don't know how many people were like, well, you're just making sure that so-and-so wins, you know, or this person wins. It's the lesser of two evils. And I always said, I was like, I don't vote for somebody. I don't vote against someone. I vote for someone. And I'm right. not going to put my name to either one of these guys. Well, you know, and, you know, and, and, and a lot of people make that decision. My point being that mm-hmm. we lose, we lose sense of our common ground. Mm. because we're fed too much information that we're that if you're not with us you're against us and no, we don't take time we don't take time to really listen to each other to, to restore common ground so there's a couple of things i want to go into and this might be a decent segue because you mentioned you know everybody's got common ground and you've done a lot of work in the prison system i have and particularly dealing with people who have life sentences and, and they're dealing with mur- you know, murderers. Have you noticed in your practice there that you also have a lot in common with those people, the murderers and the people like, like do you see some things in, in them that you're like, wow, you know, we have a lot in common actually. I see, I really don't have a lot in common with them. Right. But however, what I do see and what we do see emerge from the training and from the experience of this intensive training we give these people is there a resurgence of humanity. Well, that's I think that's what I was getting at. Where they, that, become, they become in touch with their emotions again. 
and they move into being a fulfilled, integrated human being that they've never been before. Right. I think that's what I was getting at is that, mm -hmm. you know, when you when you see them or you, you deal with them and you it sounds like based on your work, you deal with them in a very intimate way um, that you probably learn, you know, they're they're not they're not necessarily monsters, you know, that they that they've that's that correct. Sense? Yeah. That's correct. Um, murderers are bred, not born. Mm. Every single person that I've taught in prison mm -hmm. has a horrific story behind them. Horrific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just give you one example, and this is a common story. We, when, you, when we, we, we were working at Valley State Prison for Women, which is now a men's prison, but back in 2010, 11, and 12, it was the largest, most violent women's prison in the world. That's where we started Prison of Peace in that prison. And... Mm -hmm. We worked, one of the young women, we had worked with women from all different ethnicities, ages, education, you name it. It was polyglot. We had a young woman. She was in her, I, I think she was in her 20s, uh, who was serving a life sentence. And she told us this story. She said, I was raped, serially raped by my uncles from the time I was three until I was seven years old. My mother addicted me to heroin when I was eight. And she started prostituting me when I was 12. I killed my first John at 14. I killed my second because he was trying to kill me. I killed my second at 14. And I was a heroin addict. And I was sentenced as a 14-year-old to life sentence. Wow. And she said, I've never been safer in my life than I am in prison. Wow. Wow. Our, society, is... our society allows that to happen. Wow. So... Tell me what Prison for Peace is. Prison, it's a uh, prison of prison, peace. Prison of peace. Tell mm -hmm. me what that's about. It is a project that Laurel Coffer, a mediator in Los Angeles, and I started in response to a letter that she received in 2009 from a woman serving a life sentence without possibility of parole at Valley State Prison for Women, asking if Laurel would come in to train 150 women serving life and long-term sentences, how to become peacemakers and mediators to stop the prison violence. They knew they weren't getting out. They were tired of the violence and they wanted tools to stop it. Laurel read the letter to me uh, because I left fairly, I live an hour and 20 minutes from the prison and she knows I'm a secondary black belt and also uh -huh. a very experienced trainer and mediator. And we were good friends. And she's, she read it to me and said, what do you think? And I said, we should do this. Hmm. So we started Prison of Peace. We, de we developed a, a, an, a, an entirely different kind of curriculum than anybody's ever seen before. Based on the assumption that people in prison lack, their baseline skills are below normal. I mean, they're negative mm -hmm. skills. Mm -hmm. And so we developed a very powerful curriculum and began training our first cohort of 15 women in April of 2010. And in those days, we went 16 weeks to take them from zero to becoming a fully credentialed mediator, to, mm -hmm. to intervene in prison violence, arguments and fights, and mm -hmm. stuff before, before things escalated. <laughs> That's how it started. <laughs> and we worked three years in the women's prison, and then it was repurposed to a men's prison we ended up working in the men's prison. This is all pro bono. We weren't mm -hmm. making any money. 
We worked three years in the men's prison, and then we started getting grants from the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. And today, we're active today in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 15 prisons in Greece, and a prison in Northern Italy. And wow. we, during the pandemic, we filmed our entire curriculum, so now it's digitized. And we were kind of at, we're kind of testing the best way to deliver the program. We're using different models in different prisons here in California. But we anticipate in 2024 being able to offer the prison peace curriculum to any prison in the world because we can subtitle everything in any language. Wow. So in, in part of this, do you see, I mean, did they see a, a, a significant decrease in the prison violence after you did this? Yes, we received in, in Valley State Prison for Women, we received an unsolicited letter from the warden two years after we started the program saying as a result of prison peace, the prison had completely quieted down. Wow. And we see this pretty much, in, if we can get prison of peace established on a yard, um, we do see a, a pretty sharp reduction in problems. Wow. And it only That's takes, uh, typically yards contain between 100 and 1,000 people. So it takes, we need to get about 3% of the people on the yard trained up. Mm. And that's when the shifts start to occur. Wow. So how long does that take? Today, uh, if we, in, with, the, with the digitized course on Blu-ray discs, it can take anywhere from six months to a year, depending upon how fast the staff sponsors want to, facilitators want to move this thing through, to move somebody from being, knowing nothing, to being a fully work, a fully capable, competent mediator. Right. Uh, and I'll just say that, we have had 700 of our students released on parole in California over the past what, 10 years, 15 years. Not one of them has reoffended. Wow. That's impressive. Zero recidivism. Wow. So do you have a goal? I mean, if that's true and you and you are basically, you know, rehabilitating these people through your program, mm -hmm. uh, why not just take it everywhere or is that the goal well we would like it to be everywhere mm -hmm. uh, there is there are a lot of obstacles to introducing this into the prison environment one of which is the prison bureaucracy itself bureaucracy itself is very difficult to work with sure and so and it varies from prison to prison we see we have some prisons that have been phenomenal in terms of their support mm -hmm. of what we do. And in those prisons, the program has been fantastic. Mm -hmm. We have other prisons where the support has not been there. And yeah. so the program, the project hasn't worked so well. So buy-in from the- You gotta have buy-in from the staff, the correctional staff and the warden. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the buy-in, if they're not really 100% behind this and really wanna do it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Wow. Uh, that's that's really the, those are really the main determinants. Now there there also depends on the yards. For example, at, at uh, Pleasant Valley State Prison in Colinga, California, we have had a very successful program on Delta Yard, but we did we we did not go on to I think it was C Yard. I might be mistaken. One of the other yards, there are A, B, and C and D yards. So another yard we didn't go in because that was a gang controlled yard, and the gangs mm -hmm. didn't want us. Hmm. because they were afraid 
that peacemaking would they would lose control they'd lose their power interesting so um wow i mean how would you how would you fix that within the gang though i mean is there a way you can have you have you you been able to tailor it there's no real way to do that although i will say that for three years i worked at corcoran state prison which one of the one of the two supermaxes, Pelican Bay and Corcoran? I was teaching a hundred feet from Charles Manson's cell. Right. I mean, I was in the belly of the beast. That's the darkest place in the, mm-hmm. in the state. Yeah. And I was working with men who were coming out of gangs. They were in what's known as a gang debriefing unit, mm-hmm. and they were coming out of gangs. Mm-hmm. They were all had violent pasts, and mm-hmm. we were teaching them to be peacemakers and mediators. And they mm-hmm. they they were amazing. I mean, the first time we met them. Yeah. That we were sitting in this dingy, dark room. It had 18 cages in a semicircle. And we were sitting in there waiting for people to show up. And the correctional officer would bring in these men one at a time. And they, they were hench- they've, got, they've got shackles on their feet, shackles on their arms. They put them in the cages, shackle their feet, and put them in the cages. And now we've got students in cages all around. Wow. And that was our first introduction to that kind of training. That's interesting. Eventually, we got them out, and we trained in the same room. We had chairs in front of the cages, so they weren't they weren't shackled. And we got wow. we once 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 we established trust with the correctional officers, and they say that we know what we're doing, and we don't have problems, and we follow the rules. They're cool, mm, and, man. And, and so, and we've That's, never had a problem. We have never had a problem in prison. Not the slightest. Not even a whiff of a security problem. Did you ever get a chance to talk to Charles Manson? I did not. He uh, had, he had, um, but we heard lots of stories. Hmm. The guy, hmm. you know, he's psychopathic and he was yeah, a supreme yeah. manipulator. And, uh, you know, yeah, but that's, that's he, he, to me, for of all the serial killers, he's the most fascinating. Yeah. Even I, the whole story of how he became Charles Manson just is so fascinating. Yeah. We did have the opportunity to train the guy who started the Aryan Brotherhood. Wow. How did that go? That guy was amazing. Really? Yeah. Uh, by the time we met him, he had, he had, he, he was, had one PhD and was working on a second PhD. Super smart guy. Hmm. Uh, and became a brilliant mediator. And, and I heard, I can't verify this. I heard that after he completed our program, he was being moved around to work in, moved in prisons to help stop gang violence as a mediator. I don't know whether that's true or not. Wow. That's interesting. That was a rumor we heard. Wow. That's so so interesting. Well, let me ask you, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk to you. Not that they're the same as as murderers, although they they seem like sometimes as as children. (laughs) I got four kids. How old are they? 16, 14, 12, and 10. Okay. And so... You know, it's interesting. I, I tell people when I'm talking about this is that um, uh, it's my favorite time of life. But there's also like I love that they're all becoming, you know, their own people and they're all discovering who they are. But they're wildly different. Right. You know, I, I have my 16 year old is very, you know, sometimes I think he's going to become an attorney because he's so logic based and he, you know, he likes reading, you know, philosophy and he's reading Tocqueville and C.S. Lewis and, you know, Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky, 
you know. Um, yeah, right. You know, um, and he's reading all of these interesting books and, and likes to debate them. And then my youngest daughter, you know, and he, and he tends to kind of lean a little conservative, you know, in his thinking. And my daughter is completely the opposite. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's 12, so she's got some time. But I mean, she's just she's very, uh, very progressive. She's very uh, she really cares about social issues. And uh, and if they and, and it's interesting because my son wants to talk to her about these things and kind of debate with her and ask her questions. And she has she wants no part of it. And it's just so interesting to watch it as they as they go about it. And then, of course, it sometimes it leads to fights, not just that. But I mean, like they'll be in all sorts of fights over everything from who gets the TV to uh, who gets, you know, who gets more time on the iPad to you know, where we're going out to eat. Uh, so does this work with parent-child relationships and also sibling relationships? So the answer to your question is brilliant. This stuff, the, the research studies around affect labeling with children demonstrate that when you start affect labeling children at a younger age, typically two, three, and four, by the time they're 12 years old, they're usually two grade levels academically ahead of their peers, and they have the emotional maturity of an average 21-year-old. Really? Yeah. And the reason the reason is that, well, <laughs> there's a lot, a lot to this, but let me just say that most families, many families, even the most loving families, emotionally abuse their children in a very insidious and pervasive way without even knowing they're doing it. And they do that through a, something that is called emotional invalidation. So your child, your little, let's say you have a little, your little girl is out running around and she falls down and skins her knee and starts to cry. What is she told? Suck it up. <laughs> That's right. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Suck it up. Put on your, put on your big lip, honey. Stop crying. That's what most kids are told, boys and girls. And they learn very quickly that having emotions means they're going to be rejected by their parents. Mm -hmm. And by the time most children are six to eight years old, they learn that they live in an emotionally unsafe world and that they have to guard their own emotions from everybody else because otherwise they're going to be put down or they're going to be rejected or they're going to be judged or criticized. And this is universal. Mm -hmm. The, let me, the, let me, can I ask you something about that real quick? Yeah, but just let me go, say go, the, go antidote, the antidote is to, instead of emotionally invalidating a child, validate their emotions by affect mm -hmm. labeling. That's mm -hmm. the antidote. And the research is clear about the effect of that when you do that. Interesting. But here's the thing, and, and this is something, and I, I'm actually seeking this because maybe I need some correcting. Because um, I have kids that are you know they're all different some of them i gotta go hard on them and some of them are super sensitive but i but i give them kind of a message sometimes which is and i think that this is accurate you know when you get into the real world uh people don't really care about your sensitivities much you know and so how do you how do you practice this but also Help people understand that that's true. You don't, you're shaking your head like I'm wrong. A total bullshit. You don't believe that? I do not believe that. Not for a moment. 
I think that's a myth that's been propagated for generations due to ignorance. And it's the cause of more emo emotional abuse than you can possibly imagine. Every single person in prison that I work with mm -hmm. had that kind of attitude to an extreme. Mm. We are not going to make resilient, powerful, emotionally competent kids by judging and criticizing them when they have an emotional experience. But I don't, I don't that's not what I mean. It, let me let me back it up because I'm not telling them that it's bad to have emotions. But what I'm telling them is is like for example, like if my daughter, if if she comes home and she is upset because somebody didn't, you know, she's sensitive about a certain thing, and so somebody else didn't cater to that. I'm telling her, you're going to have to get used to that. You don't think that people have to get used to that? That's the wrong, that's the wrong way to approach it. What do you think the right way? What would be a better way? The right way to approach it. Remember the mantra, de-escalate, then problem solve. Okay. Oh, honey, you're really upset and distressed. And you feel a little embarrassed and humiliated. And you feel like you've been rejected and abandoned. And sometimes you feel like you're completely all alone and unlovable the tears will start to flow because that's exactly how she feels. Mm -hmm. Once she says, yeah, nods her head, sigh of relief, drops the shoulders. Now you can say, all right, so let's talk about ways to deal with that situation. What are some strategies we can come up with so that when cruel girls pick on you, you know how to deal with it? What do you think we should do? What do you think there's some good strategies? And now you start teaching. Mm. If you tell her you have to get tough, and this is just the way life is, you are emotionally invalidating her. Mm. She, she won't take the lesson. All she'll hear is the judgment and criticism. Mm. And she will withdraw. Mm -hmm. So you, will, you the only way to deal with this is to validate her emotional experience, regardless of how silly you think it is. It's not silly to her validate her emotions and then when she's calmed down coach her in alternative strategies for dealing with bullying dealing with cruelty dealing with the bullshit that little kids have to go through at school and help her develop strategies to cope with it but but i guess i guess what i'm i guess what my concern is is this is that uh you're gonna run in how do i put that you're gonna run into jerks everywhere you know like there's no, the whole world isn't going to accept that's this. right and i and, and remember the paradox of tai chi soft to be strong vulnerable to be powerful i want i want kids to be strong and powerful and resilient and self-confident and and have the mental and emotional elasticity to deal with anything that comes at them mm-hmm mm -hmm. They're emotional beings. We're all emotional beings. I want those kids to be emotionally competent. When they're emotionally competent, they know exactly what to say, how to say it, and when to say it, no matter how intense the situation, with total calm, strength, and compassion in their hearts. Don't you want your kids to be able to do that? Yes, I do. And so that means that no matter who the person is that tries to upset them, tries to push them off their center, they know exactly how to respond. And they do it every single time, and it works every single time without fail. But here's here's what the what I think my issue is, and I think that, and I think that everything that you're saying 
in a family setting. Like, for example, one thing that my daughter said to me when I had this conversation, and I think she was right, and I told her I think she's right, was I told her, I said, you know, you're going to get out there in the world and realize that not everybody's going to care about your sensitivities. And she says, but I do expect that from, but you're my dad, and I do expect it from you. And I said, that's fair. That's fair. You're right. So in a family setting, this makes sense. But what happens? I mean, you know, you've been in a law firm. Let's say they're working for some sort of narcissistic prick, you know, uh, who who doesn't care about, you know, who who yells and does these things. You can't just sit there and cry about it, right? And I'm not so, suggesting. And I'm not suggest, I'm going to suggest to you that exactly the opposite will happen. If okay. if she is trained to be emotionally competent and resilient by you and your wife, her mother. If she, first of all, she'll never make a decision to work with a narcissistic asshole because she'll know better. She'll be able to spot it and say, I'm not working for this creep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so she'll be able to make much, much more mature decisions about people she dates, people she works with, bosses she might work with, because she's going to have an emotional maturity that far exceeds her age. Mm. And teaching her how to be emotionally competent is, is the key. It's the key to that. It's the key to that um, to that success. Mm-hmm. We don't take any time with our children and teach them how to be emotionally competent. We just expect that somehow they're going to learn emotional competency. It is a set of skills that has to be trained and practiced and learned. It's not automatic. So, so let me then let me ask you about that because that's that's true, right? They may have the emotional capacity to not work for a narcissistic jerk, but if you get into it corporate setting or you get into any any sort of employment where you have multiple people coming in you're going to run into people that are difficult to deal with right so like how uh, let's say you have somebody who is um, who is i i would i don't know how else to call them other than they're particularly sensitive right i mean everybody's got different exteriors so how do you train them then to deal with, say, there's another person that's not necessarily who they work with or they work for, but they gotta they gotta live in this area at 40 hours a week. How do you train them to deal with that? The same way you train an adult to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Number one, we're emotional beings. Mm-hmm. So we need to have emotional tools to work with emotional beings. So what mm-hmm. are those emotional tools? They're listening skills primarily learning how to listen and reflect emotions, learning how to self-affect label so you can be self-aware of your own emotional experience and self-regulate yourself, mm-hmm. learning how to do that, learning how to recognize the emotional experience of another human being. The reason people are assholes and jerks is because they're, they're uncontrolled, they have uncontrolled emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By definition, a jerky people assholes, narcissists, they all are totally emotionally incompetent. They have no control over their emotions. Mm-hmm. They're by definition, non-rational people. They're emotional people. Mm-hmm. If you have emotional tools and you know how to recognize the emotional experience a person is having, and you know exactly what to say and how to say it and when to say it, to calm people down, you have total control. You become the leader that everyone wants to follow. Mm. And that is, that is the key to success. And your daughter, if she learned these skills, can go into any kind of work she wants to go into. 
Yeah. And she will become an automatic leader wherever she is. So, because, so when you're, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Because she has a set of skills that nobody else has. Right. So how long, like if you have somebody who's in their 40s and their 50s, you know, kind of midlife, right? How long does this retraining really take? Because it eight seems weeks. to me like one hour a week for eight weeks. That's it? That's it. Have you ever had anybody who couldn't get through it? I had one one woman over in the Bay Area who took me a year. Really? Yep. So but that's it. I just trained a... I just trained an OBYGYN female physician in Texas. It took her four weeks. Completely oh, transformed yeah. her life and her practice. That is I, the reason I bring this up is because that is it. That is quite. That is a quite uh, surprising success rate. Given how many, the reason that, what I mean by that is most people. I, I don't know if this is accurate. It may not, but it seems like the people who tend to, you know, go to therapists and life coaches and things like that, it's because of a lot of it has to do with conflict resolution or trauma. And it sounds like what you're what you're dealing with is you're saying in eight weeks you could fix that. I, I can't help people cure their underlying trauma. It depends on what it is, right. okay? Right. Depends on who they are. I, I can't fix that, but in eight weeks, I can teach you how to listen to emotions mm -hmm. and, and make it habitual so that when you're listening to people, you're not listening to their words, you're listening to what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. It only takes eight weeks to learn how to do that. And then over a period of months of practice, you will start reprogramming your own brain and you'll start to become more emotionally self-aware, more and have better emotional self-regulation. At most, if you're if you're diligent about your practice, it's like riding a bike. If you're diligent about your practice, your life will be completely transformed in six months with eight weeks of eight one-hour set. Well, the introductory session is longer than that, but basic training and then six to eight weeks of follow-up, one hour a week. Wow, that's all it takes. We, did, so, we demonstrated this over and over and over again in the prison project. That's so interesting. With tens of thousands of inmates. So if people are, if people are listening to this and they're interested, how can they find you? DougNoll.com. Okay. And you're also on YouTube, you said. I'm on YouTube. Yep. Look, look uh, you can Google me. Um, the Power of Emotional Competency wow. is my channel. I, I know, I know you, uh, you, you know, uh, we're a little bit over time of what we talked about, yeah. but I have three questions I ask everybody that sure. I want to ask you. Okay. First one is, is what would you consider to be your biggest success in life? My biggest success? Yeah. <laughs> Marrying my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big one. I would also say that the Prison of Peace Project at a professional level, the Prison of Peace Project has probably had the most profound impact on me as a, as a human being. That's awesome. You mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier first wife. This is your second wife. Second wife. Does let me. I, I want to ask you just this follow up question. I don't know. I, I I'm not sure how why how the first marriage ended, but does not having <laughs> right. I I gathered. So if that's the case, do you feel like your experience with your first wife and the experience there has aided in your gratefulness for your second wife? Yes, I have a tremendous amount of gratitude. I still have to say I deeply respect my first wife. Mm -hmm. um, I, I hold no ill will towards her at all. I mean, I only hold her in the highest esteem. The problem mm -hmm. in that relationship was we were both professionally adept and very mm -hmm. successful, both had professional careers. 
but we were both emotionally very, very immature. Remember I talked about emotional stunning at eight years old. We were both basically emotional eight-year-olds. Mm. And it was too scary for us to build intimacy and grow and do this kind of stuff you've got to do in, in a relationship to make it work. And so it, it ended up going in, we ended up going in different directions and, mm. it, and it was sad. Yeah. It was yeah. sad. I imagine. So tell me, um, what, what was the biggest failure in your life and what did you learn from it? The biggest failure, I think, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of failures. <laughs> sure. Most successful people have. Yeah. But I think that, it, within from the time that I left the practice of law, my biggest failure had to do with a civic project that I took on with a group of people. And it was our, we were part of the Fresno Business Council Board of Directors. And it was, we were, we, we were charged by the board to completely rethink how Fresno County deals with mental health, addictive disorder, and homelessness. Mm. And we were within nine months of being able to implement a total one-stop-fits-all system kind of based on the San Antonio model. Mm. And we got tanked by the person who was leading, the political leader who was leading that effort because she was not get, she was afraid she wasn't going to get credit for it. And so she basically sabotaged two years of hard work. Oh, wow. And and I walked away. I learned a really important lesson. And mm -hmm. the lesson I learned was if I'm going to get involved in a major project like that, I am going to be the leader. Mm -hmm. And I am going to have the authority to make the decisions. And I will and it's going to be and everybody's going to people just have to trust that I will put together an organization and a team to execute. And I will be totally transparent about what we're doing, but it will be on me. And I will not rely on a person that I trusted to have my back and to do what she said she was going to do and did exactly the opposite. It was a total, it was a total betrayal. Interesting. Complete, and I have never been betrayed like that before professionally in my life. Wow. That's too bad. So tell me now, here's the last question. You know, at some point later on down the road, you're going to pass away. There'll be a funeral and there'll be a eulogy. What would you hope the one thing is that someone would say in your eulogy? He lived a life of service to humanity. Hmm. Do you believe you, do you believe you, you, uh, in what you practice now, you've done that? Absolutely. You feel fulfilled? Absolutely. That's it's it's so good much better. So much better than practicing law. <laughs> well, it's it's good it's good to hear that because I think, quite frankly, I think anyone who's ever been in the law has had moments where they've asked the question that you've asked, which is, do I do I feel like I'm really making a difference? I think most people who got into law, I went to McGeorge too, right? And so, mm -hmm. I think every colleague I had that went to McGeorge, they came in and they thought they were going to make a difference. They were going to be, they were going to argue in front of the Supreme court or put criminals in jail or do something. And then they end up in insurance defense or they end up here or they do this all thing. This, and then they, all this work. Yeah. And then they look at it and they go, what am I really doing? That's helping. Right. I I'm lucky in that. I do believe that what I do for the most well, part is, is helping. Good, good plaintiff's lawyers can do a good job, but there are, you know, there are plenty of plaintiff's lawyers out there that are 
They're not doing that great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're not. I guess that's the best way to put it. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And so I do get some reward, but I think we all have those moments. We have that client that's not real grateful, or the case right. that didn't go so well, and they go, "What am I doing here? Am I really?" You know what I mean? And I think it's really great to hear of people because I think uh, law has a shelf life. Some people can do it their whole lives. Right. Some people can't, and it's great to hear that you. You reached a limit and had the strength to go off and do something and you feel more fulfilled. And that's, it's always a success story in my mind. Yeah. So that's exactly right. Well, listen, I, I appreciate you coming on and giving me the time and, and talking with me. I, this has been really great. Um, we'll have to have you back sometime and especially, it, you know, love to have you for those who've listened, uh, subscribe. We still got a whole bunch of other stuff coming up. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun stuff. And so you can find uh, Doug Noll at DougNoll.com on YouTube and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, hopefully some people come from this and go and, and subscribe to your eight-week program and, and change their lives. Absolutely. So, appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. Okay. Take care.